Are you ready to change the way you think about work? Join leaders from the world's biggest organizations, international best-selling authors, trailblazers, and innovators at today's fastest-growing companies. These are the top minds in business, marketing, design, and real estate, here to explore how great work gets done. I'm George Lucas Pfeiffer, and you're listening to Work Inspired. When you interview someone like the guest we've got on the show today, you are equal parts excited and nervous. This man has led some of the largest companies in the automotive industry and is currently the chief operating officer at Volkswagen in North America. This is going to be such a great episode. Please welcome our guest, Johan Dineishen. Johan, thanks so much for being on the show today. We're, we're incredibly excited to have someone with your caliber of experience and success uh, here to talk to us today. So thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. One of the things we like to do, uh, especially with guests like yourself, is to just kind of have you tell your professional story. How did you get to where you're at today? I would say uh, at a high level with a great deal of hard work and uh, a lot of luck thrown in. I'm not going to go into my whole resume, but I, I, I've been in the auto business virtually my entire career. Uh, I started uh, my professional journey in South Africa. I'm a South African national, first initially with BMW where I would say uh, it was a fantastic learning experience to learn a little bit about brand management and not just the auto business, but, you know, the crafting and cultivating of brands, uh, continuity, consistency, and all of those things that are so important, especially for luxury brands. That experience uh, stood me in good stead. And I was uh, invited then to join um, the Volkswagen group. And at that time, I'm going back to the early nineties, they had just embarked on this journey of uh, brand separation between the Volkswagen and Audi brands. Up until then, you know, it was sort of commingled and handled by a common organization, nowhere near uh, you know, the stature of brand that Audi is today. I suppose my luxury background was part of the appeal. And uh, I kind of continued that journey uh, representing they not only developing the Audi business and Audi South Africa, but later on to do the, I went on to do the same in Japan and then uh, moved to the U.S. More or less always, you know, it was like a Groundhog Day doing the same thing. Just the, the, the order of magnitude expanded and the complexity, of course. Uh, I came to the U.S. Uh, 2005 and was fortunate, I think, to be part of a team that uh, led to really a dramatic turnaround in the fortunes of Audi in this market. Uh, and helped to sort of lay that foundation for the powerhouse brand that it is today. I then, um, after 20 or so, odd years or so with the VW Group, all of it with Audi, I, uh, I left to join um, Nissan. Uh, Carlos Ghosn had been uh, very persuasive and had asked me to, to kind of emulate that in establishing the Infinity business as a separate luxury unit from you know the mainstream Nissan brand. And then unexpectedly on that journey, which I enjoyed very much, uh, based in Hong Kong, and uh, it was a fabulous experience, I, uh, I was invited to join uh, the General Motors top leadership team, uh, working uh, with Mary Barra and Dan Ammon. Um, and the idea was that I would take on global leadership of the Cadillac brand and turn it from a U.S. only sort of uh, focus into a, a global brand that required rapid expansion, uh, you know, into Middle East, Europe, China, especially. That was a very, very fulfilling and rewarding journey for me. Uh, unfortunately, you know, sometimes these things happen uh, in, in, in top leadership roles. Uh, shall we say we had a, a professional and strategic disagreement 
And uh, General Motors and I parted company and GM went on being GM and I returned uh, to my roots. I, I, I uh, rejoined the Volkswagen Group where uh, I must say I was made to feel very welcome and it was fantastic. It was like rejoining family. And uh, today I'm uh, Chief Operating Officer responsible for the North American region. And uh, I guess uh, it makes for an intense day, but a very exhilarating and fulfilling one. So automotive, big brands, global uh, business, are these all passions of yours? Are there certain things that, you know, did you decide to stay within the, the automobile industry because you love cars? Is the appeal that you get to travel the world and lead teams all over the globe? Uh, what kind of kept you on the path that you're on, that, that you've been on and that, where you're at today? Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's essentially true. I mean, those are important uh, ingredients and building blocks. Uh, I will tell you that I've been uh, a car nut since I can remember. Uh, my parents tell me that I, I, they thought I could read at four years old because I was going through the newspapers, always looking at the car ads. Apparently, I declared that around nine years of age that I intended uh, to be the CEO of Audi one day. I just didn't nominate the auto business. I even declared the brand. And, you know, by, as I say, sometimes you get lucky. Combination of luck and hard work and good opportunities, I guess. Uh, brought me to the point where I could I could live out that dream and uh, and then even go beyond. Yeah. Well, we're going to get into your leadership style and and some of the ways that you've been successful in these organizations here in a little bit. But I want to I want to since we came up to today and with your current role, I want to acknowledge some of the change that we've experienced here this year in 2020 um, and kind of going back to the beginning of the pandemic, especially with your uh, executive leadership role and and being responsible for so many things within the brand. How did you guys initially react to the crisis when it when it kind of first reared its ugly head here earlier this year? Well, you know, to be candid, since it was uh, unprecedented, at least in modern living memory, uh, I would have to just say, I, I can't imagine anybody was prepared for it. We first had to really come to terms with what it meant. We knew it was serious, but you don't exactly know how serious. So when the, the, the pandemic was first announced and the lockdown started, our first immediate reaction, of course, was one to uh, not underestimate it and uh, do whatever steps we could as quickly as we could to secure the safety of uh, of our employees. Uh, that was job number one. Particularly so for us in a in a, a broader manufacturing environment where you've got a lot of jobs that require you know hands on presence, uh, but then also obviously being a major corporation, they have many job functions that uh, kind of lend themselves to remote work, uh, and we had to firstly shut down the plants, figure out how to shut them down. You know, you don't just turn off a factory, you switch off the lights and go home. And we didn't know for how long the lockdown was going to be. So uh, you had to, to take some steps to systematically, uh, if I could use the term, mothball the plants. And then um, the very next step was to ensure that uh, there was a business to come back to. Uh, we didn't know how long lockdown was going to last. Uh, we certainly knew that the economic impact and disruption was going to be profound. And so with large corporations, you know, you go through cash burn with your fixed costs, uh, like staggering amounts of millions per day. And uh, even if you're sitting on top of a, a fairly sizable uh, cash uh, reserve, you burn through that quite rapidly. So we had to take immediate actions to ameliorate cash burn, preserve liquidity. Uh, while at the same time, we really wanted to ensure that to the fullest extent possible, uh, we could protect job security for our employees. And uh, I'm glad to say that we, we've, we've come through this uh, not having had uh, 
to retrench or separate any single individual. We've not downsized. Um, it's been important to us. The next issue, of course, was uh, then as we got deeper into uh, the, the, the whole COVID thing to begin to imagine how we would restart because you had to imagine somehow you have to resume business again. And uh, that brought in, particularly in our manufacturing operations, uh, a lot of considerations that hadn't been part of, you know, what you thought about before. How do you practice social distancing? We shut down canteens. We brought in boxed meals. We set up transportation services for our employees so they wouldn't have to use public transport. Uh, it means we could control the density of, 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 of the buses. We can control, you know, the sanitization of the vehicles. And, and we brought in additional ablution facilities into our plants so that, you know, people uh, had, had um, they, this free space around them and so on. Apart from the obvious things of setting up testing and uh, checking uh, the health of, of people as, as, as they, they come to the plant, setting up tracking systems. And uh, by and large, where all these things have been challenging, uh, I would have to say they, they've been successful for us. In fact, the, uh, the incidence of infection within our plants, whether we speak in U.S. or, or Mexico, is in fact significantly lower than that is of the surrounding community. So I, I guess our plants are the safest place for employees that, that, that they could, could be. First of all, congratulations. It sounds like you guys put in all the right measures, you know, given and, and you said it unprecedented. No one really knew how to do this. So you were able to react fast uh, and and keep your employees safe. I also love that you were able to think about the business to come back to and make make it through this year without having to do uh, layoffs. That's that's incredible. I'm interested now we're kind of, you know, we've been dealing with this for eight months or so and and the vaccines on the horizon. So Hopefully by next year, we're going to start to be able to return to some form of normalcy. I'm very interested to know from your perspective, given the change that 2020 has brought about in the way that we do business, are there certain things that you think will last beyond the pandemic as it relates to work? Unquestionably so. In fact, in a way for, for us at VW, there was a little bit of, if you can say, uh, good fortune coming out of this entire episode and the learnings we've done. Uh, we were, in fact, preparing, given, you know, the growth of, of, of the Volkswagen business, and uh, it, it's really on a, on a strong growth trajectory here in the U.S. That means you also expand your operations, you bring in new functions, and the organization gets bigger, and you need, guess what, more office space. And we were planning, um, you know, a consolidation of our various functions, and we kind of, you know, have grown uh, in leaps and bounds. And so we've got far-flung operations all across the country and even clustered around our headquarters in uh, the D.C., Washington, D.C. area, you know, various functions occupying very different buildings. One is bringing them together in one campus. And um, this was, the planning was sort of in a very advanced stage and we were following the conventional thought pattern. You know, everybody needs a desk and we want good collaboration and we want everybody together in the same place, all those good logical things. And then COVID came. And uh, quite frankly, I think I and, and, and most of the world has been quite astonished at how effectively we've been able to maintain continuity with business operations working remotely. Not too clear. As part of the challenge also for leadership is that uh, you've got in a, in, a, in a corporation as complex as ours, you've got some jobs that simply have to be done on site. You, you cannot do them remotely. You cannot build cars remotely. You cannot distribute vehicles. You can't engineer, develop, test drive, all those things. You need people on site. And that for us too was, uh, you know, how do you make sure that you don't end up with a two-class system? Uh, those who are fortunate to be able to work from home, good luck to them. 
and too bad for the others. We wanted to avoid that, but also, you know, it's 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 management's responsibility to ensure the safety of all your employees. And you would listen. There is more risk associated by, uh, particularly the time when the pandemic was at its peak. Uh, there is more risk associated by being on site. There's no denying it. But you also, therefore, don't want to expose people unnecessarily to risk. And for those job functions that could be done remotely, we said that that's just our responsibility as well to those folks. Nevertheless, uh, I think that the work model, particularly for um, office-bound activities, has changed forever. No company is going to continue to have this idea stubbornly and blindly that uh, we need to cling to the past and everybody needs a desk. I think that, uh, and this has informed our plans then for our own um, way of, of organizing our business going forward. You cannot have all people work remotely indefinitely. I think part of what makes organizations work, part of what forms and shapes the culture, part of what differentiates, you know, performing and successful organizations with those who continually seem to struggle is the extent to which uh, employees have formal but informal relationships as well. And those working relationships are like the oil in the engine. They make things work. And uh, if everybody is remote, that doesn't happen. You don't have these informal discussions, you know, around the water cooler or whatever. And I think that uh, is an important part of, 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 of work. And so I don't envisage a model whereby you permanently have remote work. I think there's a blend coming. Uh, and this is certainly the way that we are going about it, where you dramatically can downsize your, your office accommodation footprint. And you work on a, on a rotational basis where everybody's not in at the same time. Uh, and uh, there will be a few functions. I, I think you're typically an easy example is things like call centers. You know, it, it, it because belief that we've never really thought of this before. Uh, I'm almost embarrassed. We, we had huge office areas with hundreds of people manning telephones. Then we discovered they can work from home. <laughs> so those things still go away. And I think that therefore we'll have this blend in the future where we have a smaller footprint. We'd have employees rotating in and out. You might have uh, a range of facility for those odd occasions when you do want the whole team to be on board. They may not be working. Maybe it's uh, auditorium style seating. You want to engage, you want to connect, you want to socialize. Uh, but uh, it's a new way of looking at the business for the future. And one that I find quite exciting, to be honest. Yeah, it's something we're hearing from a lot of leaders is that the flexibility, the, the ability to choose um, that you won't have a, a, a dedicated spot for every single person and you might return to the to the office or to the workspace for certain functions. And maybe those are the more collaboration, the collaborative opportunities where the heads down focused work, if you can do it from home, would happen from home. I'm interested, though, because the concept of a of a work day, you know, traditionally was you show up at nine, you leave at five. Some companies you show up at eight, you leave at seven or whatever it is. But if you are going to adopt this flex model where people come and go, it, do you think of that as on the day they come in on a Monday or a Wednesday if they have to, and they stay home on a Tuesday and a Thursday, or do you become a lot more flexible with even the hours that they're in the space? Can they come in for the morning and then leave and go back and work from home for the afternoon? Uh, is that something you guys have given any thought to? I think they, they, there's going to be an increased degree of flexibility. On the other hand, uh, there has to also be some degree of coordination because if you know everybody decides to come in at random uh, at hours and days, that'll be problematic because you have finite space. So I think uh, it, it requires a little bit of coordination. Um, for our business, I don't think we've ever been, at least for the functions that lend themselves, that we've, never, we've never been clock watchers. You know, people... People need to get the job done. We measure results, not you know output, not input. Uh, 
Um, so it's never been such an issue for us. What I will say is that I have found by and large, you know, people were always anxious. Oh, if people are allowed to work at home, you might not get any work done. Well, let me tell you, I personally have never worked harder in my life. My days have never been longer. You know, people say I work from home. I challenge them. I say, I don't work from home. I sleep at work. <laughs> it's just, you know, uh, and I think this is the same as holding true for a lot of folks. Uh, and it's like every day you, you literally roll out of bed and a few minutes later you're on your first meetings and uh, it continues deep into the night, especially for our kind of business that's global time zones and all of those things, it makes for long days. And uh, suddenly you find yourself being productive. Whereas previously we'd imagined, no, you, you can't do it. Well, you can. And uh, I think actually it's, 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 uh, only I mentioned it's a permanent change, but it's going to, uh, I think, continue to leverage productivity increases as well. You lead leaders at your organization and some of the things you just talked about really long days, you know, um, sleeping at work, basically, you've got, you know, people that are experiencing some zoom fatigue, or you've got, you know, people that are dealing with potentially some mental uh, well-being issues, maybe uh, you're trying to make sure that teams are accountable, you're trying to plan for the future. What are some of the ways that this year has kind of impacted your leadership style? You know, uh, I think that this was also like an evolutionary process. Frankly, you don't know what you don't know. And, and if you're a perceptive leader, you recognize sometimes the new challenges that you have to deal with, I think. Um, and so uh, apart from, you know, getting the obvious sort of basics done of establishing a new way of doing business, it also uh, getting back to this point that I made that one needs to ensure that you keep this networking going. Um, people need that. And uh, it, it far more than has previously been the case is that I think leaders have had to deliberately intervene to ensure that employees remain connected and literally endeavor to socialize, if I can put it that way, uh, via Zoom or Skype or whatever the medium is they use, um, not only, you know, from one formal meeting to the other, um, but we even set up things like on a Friday afternoon, it's team, team time. And, you know, we, we get on a call and we have a glass of wine in hand and everybody's telling a little bit of their stories about the dog, the cat or the kids or whatever the case might be. Just the kind of stuff you would do if you were at work socializing. And uh, it's a little bit delib deliberate and sometimes it's a bit contrived to be candid, uh, but you have to keep pushing. And uh, what I have enjoyed is, is, is seeing then that it's sort of ignited and subgroups form where folks do this on their own. Um, you know, even in their own time. And uh, th th that's been great. I think though, uh, uh, just, sorry, just a final thought is uh, this idea that um, uh, people will exploit the situation to be true. There are some who probably do, but I think by and large, most people wake up in the morning and they want to do a good day's job and they want to achieve good results and they want to achieve recognition. And when you put all of those things together, it's a virtuous circle that, uh, I, that the business model is proving to be very workable. Yeah. One of the other things that you had mentioned when we talked before as a tactic, as a way to achieve this was that you have to set a really clear vision and you have to make sure that those goals are cascaded down through the different layers in your organization. So when you talk about effective communication, especially today when it's when it's digital, you know, when you're not having those those in-person meetings at the workspace, what are some of the ways that you 
try to increase the, the chances that your communication is effective and that everybody's on that same path? You know, I, I would just step back first before I, I answer that question directly, because you mentioned the, 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 the notion of, of, of vision, and it's really the very first step in, in, in communication, because what are you doing? Uh, and this is not a COVID or remote work topic. This is a general business leadership topic. Organizations are as effective as their teams are able to be and the results of individuals. It's absolutely essential in my point of view for every single employee in a company, regardless of their job level, to understand what the company is about. Where does the company want to go? Where is it today? Where does it want to be and why? How is it going to move from A to B? And what are the internal and external environmental challenges? What does the competitive set look like? What are the things we have to overcome? What are the innovations we need? What are the, the constraints that we have to deal with? And what exactly is the strategy that the company is following? How do those things then cascade down to corporate objectives, functional objectives, departmental objectives, and ultimately to the objectives for each and every role and each and every employee? If, if anybody has a job that doesn't have objectives, then I question whether they are able to add value. And it's the job of management to craft those and cascade them down so that each and every person understands exactly where the company's doing, uh, going, how it's going to get there, and how their individual role contributes to that success. You need to set out the sort of the roadmap with a milestone so that people can monitor the progress or the absence thereof. If there's no progress, you need a course correction and you need to do it. And once people understand their objectives and they have to be measurable and quantifiable, then you need to get out of the way and let them do their job. You need to make sure they're resourced with knowledge, expertise, tools, resources, whatever the case might be. Get out of their way, empower them to make decisions to fulfill their objectives, monitor the results and hold them accountable. And it's that feedback loop that for me completes the communication chain. Because if you just announce stuff in a vacuum and it's not followed up, well, then people will flounder. It's consistently revisiting. How are we tracking against our targets as a corporation, as a department, as a function, as an individual? Feedback loop, course correction. Nobody sets out a plan that you never want to, that you know 100% certainty about what lies in the future. You have to make course corrections. Explain why the course corrections are being done, how they are being done, how it impacts the individual. But hold people accountable for results. Uh, don't get in their way. If, if you are micromanaging people, how can you hold them accountable for the results? After all, they're merely doing what you're doing, what you're telling them to do, right? You should hold yourself accountable. And so uh, I believe in this. Empower people, make sure they're resourced adequately, let them get on with the job. So you've got clear vision, you've got a way to measure results, people know what they need to do, and you get out of their way and let them do it. Are there other, are there other skills or tactics that you tell your management team, your leadership team that encourages a motivated, empowered, inspired employee? I think an important element of this too, you know, when I say you need to hold people accountable, people often think that this is like a big sword hanging over your head. And if you don't deliver results, you get fired. This is not holding people accountable. I think that organizations that win are those that innovate. Innovation does not come without risk because after all, you're pushing boundaries, right? You are going into the unknown. Otherwise, you're a follower. You're not an innovator. Following is safe. Yeah? You can choose which is the safe journey. And if you're wanting to be a fast-charging, 
in high-performing winning company that's built on innovation, you must accept the reality that sometimes the relationship between risk and reward isn't quite what we ideally would always want it to be. You have failures. Nobody sets out to fail, to be sure. I'm not suggesting this is an objective. But a corporation and a company and successful organizations must have a culture that accepts the reality that there will be failures. And when they happen, you need to tolerate them. You can turn even a failure into something positive. You need to do root cause analysis. So it becomes a, a, a learning event. What went wrong? Uh, how do we prevent recurrence? And I'm not suggesting that uh, by having a culture that tolerates failure, that it's an open-ended thing and you do this indefinitely. Of course not. If people repeatedly fail, well, then you begin to suspect there's maybe something else wrong. Uh, but by and large, if uh, you empower people and uh, you tolerate failures constructively, people will run even harder uh, because they are, they're not afraid. And I think that's an important, for me at least in my experience, uh, building block for success. It's phenomenal advice. Thank you for that. You've already offered so many uh, chunks and what's larger than chunk. You've offered a lot of wisdom on this podcast already. Uh, one question that we ask every guest um, is that if you were mentoring someone who was looking to emulate some of the success that you've had in your career and with your leadership style, what's some professional advice that you'd give? Well, the first thing that I would say is um, stay out of corporate politics. Politics is a minefield. And uh, so many people do that and it begins to be something that pre uh, it occupies way too much of their daily uh, mental capacity. And never align yourself with one individual because corporate politics is sort of is a reality and uh, you don't, you, you want to be seen to be successful in your own right. So that's first advice. Second advice I would say is uh, learn as much as you can. Uh, don't stay confined to your own job function. Look over the boundaries. It's not a matter of interfering. It's a matter of learning. Uh, observe what is happening in other places. Be bold. Sometimes push the envelope a bit. Volunteer. Show that you have energy and drive. Don't wait to be told what to do. Show initiative. And uh, then also, I think uh, my, my sincere advice would be, sometimes leaders don't always know what their subordinates are doing. And in the absence of knowledge, they might assume they're not doing much. No. Document your own successes and have regular review meetings with your supervisor and show them the things that you've done well. And in the areas where you need help, ask for it. Uh, I think it's that kind of initiative that uh, ultimately separates the high performers and the achievers from those who just go to work, do a solid job and go home. Couldn't agree with you more. Has there been a resource? You talked about learning. Has there been a resource that's been valuable to you in your career that you'd recommend to others? Well, you know, I've, after a 30 year career, I guess that dates me a bit. So uh, my, my resources still tend to be books. Uh, I read a great deal and, and, and many management books uh, out of interest. Uh, but some that, that stand out, um, I coincidentally was, was, was asked this very same question uh, earlier this week. Um, originally, I'd go back to uh, the book that really got me sort of set in my view of the world and, and with a very strong customer orientation it was uh, the book by Tom Peters in search of excellence. Uh, it really was for me very inspirational and uh, liberating 
uh, when I adopted those same principles in my daily job. At that stage, I was still with BMW. And uh, the extent to which we were liberating our people were dealing with customers and resolving problems and complaints. Everybody came back and said, oh my, it's, it's so fantastic. We have an opportunity to please a customer. <laughs> what were we thinking before? And then uh, another one is The Speed of Trust by Stephen Covey, who really gets into this idea of collaboration of teams, this idea of everybody understanding uh, their role in an organization uh, and having one another's back. Uh, and the fact then that if you've got competent teams that are adequately resourced, aligned around a common goal and empowered, uh, that it builds trust. And when you have trust and you don't always have to double check and challenge and you know, all the bureaucracy that is the world so famous for, uh, how much more those high-performing teams can get done in a short space of time. And then also perhaps just a more interesting one, not academic book, but since I've been an auto enthusiast and had envisaged, you know, career in the auto business, uh, was Leo Iacocca's autobiography. Uh, I've reread it several times. And uh, I always find new little things that uh, isn't the man had an ego the size of the Empire State Building. Uh, you've got to get past that. We all do. But uh, it was a fantastic uh, life's journey that I was grateful uh, to read and uh, to, to, you know, that he shared with us. Thank you for those awesome recommendations. And thank you so much for the time today, Johan. It's been, it's been such a pleasure and an honor to have you on the show. Congratulations on all your success so, so far. And we're looking forward to seeing what you and Volkswagen have up your sleeve for the next decade ahead. Thank you so much. Fantastic. Thanks for having me. I've enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please take a moment to rate our show. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the Work Inspired podcast so that you don't miss any of the incredible guests we have planned for upcoming episodes. We'll continue to find the best and brightest minds in business so that you can learn, grow, and succeed, and so that we can all work inspired. Work Inspired is brought to you by BOS, a leader in commercial working environments and a Hayworth best-in-class dealership. Experience our 360 approach and discover the team, tools, and techniques required to navigate the complexity of your next workspace at BOS.com. If you have ideas, feedback, or would like to be featured on our show, please email podcast at BOS.com. Thank you for listening. This has been a Workspace Digital production. If you're interested in launching a podcast at your organization, please email info at workspace.digital for a free consultation.